Sunday school on uh, the subject matter of God's providence. And then this week signals a, uh, <clears throat> a change in the Sunday school teacher rotation. So we have some folks that weren't in adult Sunday school last week that are in it this week. And last week I had begun, I, I really just thought I would get it all done in one Sunday um, to just talk briefly about the, the overview of God's providence in history. Um, and I didn't, I didn't get, I, I got a little bit more than halfway done, but not just halfway done. And I kind of debated what to do, but then next week, and I just want to take a minute and talk about this. So, so next Sunday, uh, we're going to begin something that I don't know if we've ever done. We're going to do it for four weeks. We're going to have, um, all the guys meet and all the ladies meet. Uh, separately, and we're, we'll do that for four weeks. So that'll take the rest of October or the rest of September and the first Sunday um, in October. Um, and the ladies will be, and will be meeting in here, which for which, quite honestly, I'm very glad. I just right and gentlemen, I just don't think it'll pose any problems to us. We'll pick a corner of the gym, uh, we'll roll a chair card out, we'll grab a chair, and we'll get a place to sit, and we'll we'll just uh, we'll meet, and we'll do that for the next uh, four weeks. So. <clears throat> So all of that to say, I didn't want to try and add to and introduce additional uh, material to this this week or go before because I thought this would really be a pretty good ending point for us to get to this level. Um, let's go ahead and pray, and then I'm just going to kind of walk back briefly uh, some of what, we, what I'd raised to this point, and then we'll look at the material that we didn't look at last week. So... Father, I pray that you would help us to understand and believe and to see the activity of your hand in all things in this world. That your involvement is <clears throat> however you wish it to be on the smallest scale or the largest scale, but that you certainly are working for one solitary purpose in all of human history. And I pray that we would understand that and that you would help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as I thought about this this week, I, I realized that to us it is perhaps used most often unkindly, um, but I do think that if we take the Bible at face value, we would have to admit that God micromanages his creation. Um, that when when Jesus would say to people that not even a sparrow would fall without your father. We have a God who is not, although there is a sense in which this is true, in which God has created principles that govern the universe, that God is nevertheless personally, individually, actively involved in all things. He is involved in what is going on and who is doing those things and how they are acting and what is happening and the extent to which those actions have consequences. And so all things are being used by him. And we've defined providence broadly as God's use of his sovereign power and wisdom to accomplish his purposes in the world. <clears throat> um, and so over the course of human history, and certainly I think in the course of any day, millions of different events, conversations, activities are taking place in which God is directly involved 
not just simply involved as an observer. Um, and so that was just kind of the, the basics and introduction. And uh, if you've not uh, followed the Sunday School lesson, we, we began by looking at Ephesians chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> and I'll just go back and reread verse number 10, <clears throat> or my summary of verse number 10. When the time is right, everyone will be gathered together in Christ because Christ is really the epitome and the center of God's creation. And this is because, verse number 11, we are predestined to the purpose of his willful pleasure, that this, God has decreed this to be pleasing to him, that all things would be gathered together in Christ, that this is where his work is. This is where his energy, so to speak, is directed. <clears throat> so that we who are his creations would be oriented towards the praise of his glory so that God is supernaturally superintending his creation so that the central person is Christ and the central accomplishment is that we are praising God for the glory that he has shown us through Jesus Christ. And that, and so what I, we did last week was we just, I tried to make the argument, and again, I'm following along at least loosely in John Piper's excellent book on providence, that that this has been God's plan from the beginning, um, <clears throat> but that it is it has been particularly magnified through the existence of the nation of Israel. That <clears throat> that in other words, if if you wanted to see clearly the hand of God in working all things to bringing the Messiah to the world for the praise of His glory you're going to find that through God's relationship with Israel versus God's relationship with any other nation upon the earth. And there is a sense in which that is still true. And, of course, that raises a whole different theological question. So we talked about the fact that Genesis 1, 2, 1 through 11 Okay, are, are the discussion of the providence of God in bringing us to the man Abraham. That, that the creation of humanity and the fall of humanity and the lineage of humanity brings us to Abraham. And so we have the creation of Adam and the, and the fall of man. And from the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we have the general orientation of mankind to be away from God. Um, <clears throat> Right? Nobody accidentally, we know this folks, nobody accidentally grows in grace and knowledge. Nobody inadvertently. Right? You, you don't find, right? You, you, you don't find anybody ever, right? At whatever might be the epitome of Christian service, that person doesn't exist and their testimony is something like this. I don't know, I just woke up one day and here I was. Right? But the orientation of many people who have gone away from the Lord is something like that. A little bit here, a little bit there, they slipped here, they slipped there, they let this go, they let that go. They weren't attentive to this decision and one day they find out that they are about as far away from God as a person can get because our orientation by nature is away from him, not toward him. Toward him is always conscious, willful, deliberate. Away from him is default. That's, that's what happened in Eden, and that is where we all go. 
And, you know, we can, we can have the existential debate forever about, you know, God's involvement in recovering men and the extent to which he does that and he wills to do that. But make no mistake about this, folks. Without the direct intervention of God in some way and at some level, nobody will ever find themselves searching for him, let alone being fully equipped for him. It just, it's just never going to happen. And as we'll see when, when we go, when we get to 1 Corinthians in the next couple of weeks, probably this Wednesday, I think is the passage. This is the point that Paul is trying to make to the Corinthians with reference to the conduct of their ministry, is that it is only the work of God and it is only the proclamation of the work of God that brings men into any interest with God and any chance of being saved by God. That, that there is nothing that we can do on our end by way of manipulation that is going to bring men to God. It's just never going to happen. Um, you know, it just no matter how hard we try and no matter how innovative we become or how absent of innovation we become, it is God, God, and only God. So that brings us then, right, so that, so that really kind of sets the framework for, again, the supernatural providential work of God in selecting Abraham, who we don't know this at the time in Genesis 11 and 12, we don't learn this until many years later when Israel enters the promised land or is at the point of entering the promised land, at least it's not told to us, that Abraham was actually just a pagan man. He was not in any way a God worshiper. There's no testimony that even though he lived in Sumer, he was seeking. We just have this testimony. He, he and his fathers lived on the other side of the flood, and they were pagans. <clears throat> They worshipped other gods, and God came to him and appeared to him and called him. <clears throat> and, and in fact, if you recall, Joshua 24, 2 and 3 is very emphatic, <clears throat> right, that they were laboring on behalf of these deities. Right? They, were, they were not, Abraham was not engaged of some kind of spiritual neutrality. He was actively engaged, along with his ancestors, in the service of false deities, and God appeared to him. And Nehemiah 9, 6, and 7 make that argument, and of course that is part of the covenant with him in Genesis 12, and Paul refers to that in Galatians chapter 3. So, right, so we go back to Adam, and then from Adam we go to Abraham. Um, not that we're disregarding Noah, but, we, but Abraham then in that story becomes the next critical figure, and... <clears throat> And so 4,000 years ago, God picks that man, Abraham, who will be the man who, by virtue of his faith then, is the illustration and the example and the model of all who will be rightly related to God. Not by physical genealogy, because again, Abraham had no physical claim to a relationship with Jehovah. And not by conduct of any human works, because Paul just hammers again and again and again that it is a product of Abraham's faith, and that in Abraham's faith we have the example, the illustration, again, the model for us all, that, that the only way to be rightly related to God is to come to God by faith in Christ, period. End of the conversation. <clears throat> And then we talked about the fact that from Genesis chapter 12 through, Gen through the end of Malachi, 
We have the God's story of the nation of developing and the nation that did develop through Abraham. And so this, this is embodied in many ways in David. So just as Abraham becomes kind of the model for us of salvation by faith, David becomes the model of the ideal covenant man. <clears throat> um, the man who is completely dedicated and devoted to the service of his God. And of course, we understand that David has tremendous biblical significance and that when Jesus comes, he identifies himself both with Abraham and David. Again, no accident that the book of Genesis points out by connecting Jesus Christ to those two men. These are the generations of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And in two big steps, we have connected <clears throat> Jesus to those who believe by faith and those who are rightly related in a covenant relationship. <clears throat> so Abraham, whose name was changed to become the father of a great nation, does become the father of that great nation. David becomes the leader of that great nation. And the remainder of the Old Testament, certainly theologically driven, but, but the story of God is told in how he relates then to the people that he has chosen for himself. And so again, <clears throat> Uh, without going back and revisiting all of that, those people become God's covenant people under the law. But I would point out, <clears throat> because I think that the Bible is very clear, that the law is a temporary, it has a beginning point, and it has an ending point, and Moses is not mentioned in any of the genealogies uh, that pertain to Jesus Christ. Um, because he is not significant in that way. He is kind of an outsider, although a faithful and critical man. He is an outsider to that. His, he has a different relation. I mean, I'm not saying he's outside of salvation, but the, the notion, and, and if I can just digress for a minute, this is, this is one of the weaknesses, I would argue, not of believing in the Bible dispensationally, but of many dispensationalists, but in teaching that in the Old Testament people were saved by keeping the law. No, they weren't. No one ever was. And the law was never intended to be a soul-saving mechanism. It is designed to be a soul-condemning mechanism. And <clears throat> to magnify and amplify the need of salvation by faith in Christ. So, <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> So, so, the, this, so the, the descendants of Abraham, the people of God who come to him by faith, then are constituted an ethnicity and a nation, and they have their own relationship and their own history with God. And all throughout the Old Testament, folks, the focus of the Bible is on God's relationship with Israel. And there's no relationship with the nations of the world apart from those few nations that have any bearing on Israel. And if, and if there's no plan that God has for them at that point in time with Israel, they are just not a part of the Bible story. And so again, these, and <clears throat> I've got you in Acts 13, but let's just go back if we could to Acts chapter 14 for a moment, right, to, to kind of reorient, reorient ourselves to this. Right? <clears throat> All human beings are God's creations. All of the world belongs to God. God is active in his work in all of the world. 
And I don't mean he is disrespectful. I mean, if I could try to make that fine line, God is not disrespectful. But he is dismissive of all of the other nations in that he has no relationship with them. Or his relationship with them is incredibly limited to go back to Acts chapter 14. All right, so our Bible story is a story of God creating man and out of that man creating a nation. And then the remainder of the Old Testament is God's relationship with that nation. And since that nation interacts with other nations, those nations come into the story. But they are never focal to the story. And then there are all these other people who just have no mention because they're just not part of the story. And so when Acts chapter 14, when Paul is preaching, in verse number 15, Sirs, why do ye say these things? We also are men of like passions with you. Preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities, the emptiness of idolatry, unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in. He takes, right, God is the creator of all things, who in times past suffered all nations, all ethnicities, to walk in their own ways. Right, so this was part of the providential activity of God. With this exception, Verse number 17, nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I mean, right, because sometimes people ask these questions, right? Well, what about everybody that was living in China? Well, everybody that was living in China is covered in Acts 14, 15 to 17. In the providence of God, he left them to do their own thing with this exception, <clears throat> right? The rain fell in China, the crops grew in China, the people were fed in China, and the gladness that they had from their ability to sustain, sustain life came from God. And if we ask, well, what was going on in Europe? <clears throat> what was going on in merry old England in those days? Well, it's found under the umbrella of Acts 14, 15 through 17. And the same thing is true of Native Americans, and the same thing is true of South Americans, and the same thing is true of Mesoamericans, and the same thing is true of anybody else that you want to talk about. It isn't, and the point, folks, that I'm trying to get here, it is not that God is unaware of their existence. It is that God has one purpose in the creation of humanity. And that ultimately that purpose is the magnification of Christ. And for 4,000 years in human history, the magnification of his Messiah was an undertaking that involved one nation. One very small nation. And Israel is a tiny country geographically. It is a small population demographically. And God has been doing all that he has been doing that pertains to us in that one concentrated plot of land in that one very small group of people. And he has not been unmindful of everybody else, but he has not been actively pursuing anybody else. 
And, you know, sometimes we go, well, what happened to those people? You know, all that I know to tell you is that they had Acts 14, 17. And what they did with that, we just don't know. And what God required of them on the basis of that, right? He left himself with some witness, but he never sent a Jewish evangelist to China in the Old Testament. But now let's turn our, let's flip our attention, right? So we can, we can literally deal with every nation in human history from, from, the, from the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 right up to the day of Pentecost. We can address every other nation than Israel in three verses. Acts 14, 15 through 17. In Acts chapter 13, and this of course is important because it's part of the biblical record. I mean, this is, Paul preached this sermon and God chose to record this sermon in the inspired record of Scripture, which is not something that happened to all of Paul's sermons. In fact, the vast majority of things that Paul said and wrote were never recorded for us as part of the inspired record. And it's also pivotal because this is the sermon in which Paul recognizes that his ministry is going to be to the Gentiles. So that after millennia of God recognizing that there are other nations but not actively pursuing them, that is about to change. So Acts chapter 13. Let's just start in, let's start in verse 14. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down, which is just pretty much common fare for Paul. This is what he did on Saturday. He always went to the Jewish meeting place, the synagogue, and the common manner was for everybody to come in and sit, and then men would be invited to read or speak. <clears throat> And after the reading of the Law of the Prophets, verse number 15, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Excuse me, ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Again, this was very common fare in the the way the synagogue was, was operated, right? The Jewish men came in, there was the reading of the law, and then men were welcome to speak, to to exhort and encourage the people. <clears throat> Which, by the way, is probably a format that carries over into the into the New Testament which is why 1 Corinthians 14 reads the way that it does, but we'll deal with that someday. So verse number 16, Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. Now, ye that fear God is... I've got in my notes technical term, but I don't know if that's... Right? Men of Israel is just that. You who are ethnically Jews. <clears throat> you who fear God describes people who are not ethnically Jews, but are practicing Jews religiously. So they are people who are not Hebrews by birth, but have chosen to practice the Hebrew religion by choice. They're proselytes. And this was the way that they are known. Right? Like we, we talk about people who get saved as converts. Right? 
the Jews talked about people that came to Judaism as God-fearers. So Paul is recognizing two groups of people there under one religious umbrella. They are practicing the law. And now Paul is going to begin to preach to them. And again, folks, our emphasis for this point is on the providence of God, is upon the way that God is using his sovereign power and wisdom to work and orchestrate life events to bring about the Messiah for his one purpose, which is that all men would glorify the Messiah. So verse number 16, all right, so Paul says, men of Israel, Jews, I recognize you, those who fear the Lord, I recognize you, so please listen. Now notice the providence of God when it comes to Israel. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. God chose our fathers. Everybody else he left to their own ways. But he chose our fathers. And exalted this people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. He chose our fathers and he exalted us even though we were enslaved. In verse number 17, and with an high arm brought he them out of it. So he exalted our fathers. I mean, he chose our fathers. He exalted our fathers. He brought our fathers out of Egypt. All this is the providential work of God. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. He endured their bad conduct in the wilderness. Verse number 19, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, the providential activity of God in delivering them and giving the land of Canaan to them, he divided their land to them by lot. Joshua, beginning in Joshua chapter 13. God sets out the boundaries for the lands by tribes. Verse number 20, after that he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years. Until the time of Samuel. Verse 21, afterward they desired a king and God gave unto them Saul the son of Kis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. So for 450 years they had judges and then they wanted a king and God gave them a king and God even picked that king. They didn't get to pick the first king. Verse number 22, and when he had removed him, and again folks, as you read the story of Saul and you read the death of Saul in battle with the Philistines, we want to make sure that we understand that all of this is happening as part of God's providential plan to remove Saul from office by having him die in battle at the hand of the Philistines. And when he had done that, verse number 22, he raised up unto them David to be their king. So God picked their fathers, God exalted them in Israel, God delivered or Egypt, God delivered them from Egypt, God tolerated their bad conduct in the wilderness. God gave them the land. He gave them the conquest of the land. 
He gave them the judges who judged them in the land. He gave them their king. He took down their king. He gave them another king. I mean, the testimony of God's activity with reference to Israel is just radically distinct from that of any other nation in the world. And on and on he goes. I just, right, let's just continue on there. And by the way, in verse number 36, where Paul goes on to tell us that David served his generation by, by, by how? By doing what God wanted. With the exception of the incident with Uriah the Hittite, David was a man whose entire life was devoted to doing what God wanted. Okay, and then verse number 23. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. And so Paul makes a connection there that the New Testament makes that the Jews tended to resist. This is why Jesus asked them that question. He's not trying to be coy with them or playing, but he takes them back to Psalm number 110 and says, how can this be? Right? How can David call somebody his Lord and yet have that person be his descendant? And they couldn't answer that question because they didn't want to know the answer to that question. Right? And so verse number 24, you have the ministry of John. <clears throat> And then verse number 25, and as John fulfilled his course, because what is John? He is God's messenger, predicted in the book of Isaiah. He's not just a guy who fought his way to power or by charisma and personality achieved his position. Verse number 26, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, whosoever among you feareth God, to you of this word is this word of salvation sent. And then he goes on here, beginning in verse number 26, and we'll read down through verse number 29, that God even used the rejection of the Israelites. Even their resistance is part of God's providential plan in bringing about his purposes. Verse number 27, For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. Right? So, so God writes, my Messiah is going to be rejected by my people. And then here comes the Messiah. And what do you know? He is rejected by his own people. And how does God interpret that? Well, they're just fulfilling what I said I was going to do. Of course they're going to reject him. I said they were going to reject him. I have my own purposes in what I'm doing here. Verse number 28, And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. So God uses the spiritual blindness and ignorance of the Jewish rulers to condemn and execute Jesus according to his providential plans. And this is, this is part of the whole idea of, right, we keep reading about Jesus, that he fulfilled, that he fulfilled, that he fulfilled. It's, it's not just simply a matter of trying to prove, although I think that is a component of it. Right? But nothing that is going on here is just happenstance. 
or coincidence or just plain luck or serendipity. But God is orchestrating both the acceptance and the resistance, both those who believe and those who don't believe, without ever violating their own wills, minds, ideas, and agendas to bring about his purpose, which is that when the time of right, everybody will be gathered in Christ to the praise of his glory. And so back to verse number, verse number 30, but God raised him from the dead. So we see again the providence of God. <clears throat> and he has seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. <clears throat> right? And at this point in time, Paul begins to make the application that this Messiah that God had supernaturally navigated, if I can put it that way, through the course of human history to this little tiny nation and this select group of people, all of whom almost to a man will turn upon him and execute him, that God has done this so that he might take the message of salvation to the world. To the world. So in verse 33, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is written, also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. <clears throat> right? And this is, right? So this is where we have right, the salvation of all men, which continues on. If you'll just jump down to verse number 38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man <clears throat> is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. So everybody gets the message, salvation is only by the work of Christ, never by the work of the law, all in the sovereign plan of God. And then in verses 42 through 49, right? This is where Paul has kind of this aha moment in which he announces that his ministry now will be extended exclusively pretty much to the Gentiles. That that he has no more ministry to the Jews. And in verse number 47, Right? We see that in the providence of God, and according to the plan of God, that the division here is Jesus. Right? It's, and we, want, we want to make sure that we get this, folks. It's not a Jew-Gentile division. The Jews thought of it as a Jew-Gentile division. And this is not insignificant, if I can go a little bit off track for a moment, because our world is convinced that the problems in the world are primarily racial problems or gender problems. I mean, let's just set, us, let's just set aside the madness. And I was making it a doctor's appointment and I had to fill out a form. And the form now asks, who, who spends their days thinking up these kinds of questions? What gender were you assigned at birth? 
because everybody knows that now that I'm 65 years old, I may no longer be the same gender. So we have all of these inclusionary discrepancies that are preoccupying us. But folks, if we believe that really those are the foundational problems, if we believe that, then we're missing the text of Scripture who is making the singular division between men and women, Jesus Christ. Do you believe Him or not? And if the answer then is no, we're never going to be united no matter how racially segregated we become. And if the answer to that is yes, we can be completely united no matter how racially diverse we are. And I'm not suggesting, okay, don't, don't, are you suggesting that there's room for homosexuality and transgender? No, I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting that there is salvation for those folks if they will come to Christ, just like there is salvation for a white redneck conservative who will come to Christ. And if he will not come to Christ, he is as alienated from God as the most flaming homosexual you can find. Christ is the standard. And that is because, folks, this is the way God wants it to be. This is the line that God has drawn in the world. Verse number 47. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, and Paul's now talking about his own ministry, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And what he's talking about there is the commission that he has to proclaim Christ. And you can turn to this if you want, but, but Paul is taking language, I think, from the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 2 and verse number 25, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem, his name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, Um, waiting for the consolation of Israel, the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when parents brought the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant, thou thy servant, depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And of course, this goes back into the book of Isaiah. So that the end conclusion, folks, in, in, in Paul's sermon, right, as we read through this, God has been actively, supernaturally wielding his power in the affairs of the world to bring about a Savior, doing that through this tiny nation of Israel who has fought him tooth and nail pretty much throughout their entire history. So that he might set his Messiah as the light of the world And in 1348, the Gentiles run to this. Then the Gentiles heard this. They were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many were ordained to eternal life believed. 
And the Jews, always the problematic Jews, verse 50, the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. So to go back then to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's just take a moment and do that. What, what is God doing? And, and, and we, tend to, we don't tend to ask, right? We, we, we tend rarely to ask <clears throat> the kind of existential question of what is God doing in the world. We tend to ask the question, what is God doing to me? But folks, there's only one real answer to the question, whether it's what God is doing in the world or what God is doing to us. There just, there just is only one overarching answer to the question. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 12, that we should be two. And the word to has the idea, again, of, of being toward or directed to, right? Or oriented. That would probably be the word that we would use. That a person would be oriented in this way. That we should be to the praise, to the commendation of His glory who first trusted in Christ. That we should be to the praise of His glory. So God is working all things to the praise of His glory which will come to Him as people are rightly related to Christ. And God is doing that by having this very intense relationship with Israel. And God is doing this by having a relatively hands-off relationship with the remainder of the world. And of course, now we're living on the other side of the crucifixion and we are part of those whose responsibility is to see to it that the gospel of Christ is being given to all people because Christ is a savior for all nations. When, and I'm just going to close with this. When, when, when last week, if you go back and listen last week, I pointed out to you that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that Joshua 24 uses a word to describe the service of other gods. Joshua said to the people, our fathers lived on their side of the floods and they served other gods. They did them religious service. Revelation 22, 3 and 4, there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it and His servants shall serve Him. That is the same Greek word. We will spend our eternity doing religious service to our Savior or to God through our Savior because that is God's purpose for mankind. That is what God has been directing all elements of His providence to, to, his, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now, again, I'm going to stop there. If, if you get, and 